So once again, faced with the dreaded preach on whatever you want <laughs> topic. Um, so rather randomly, you might think, I've decided to talk to you about Job and some mountain goats. Um, bear with me. There is a point. <laughs> there is a lesson. Um, there's a lot we can learn from Job and some mountain goats. Um, this is actually something I talk about a lot. I teach Job quite a bit. And I'm want, I want to talk to you about possibly one of my favorite little past paragraphs in the book of Job. Um, I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to explain to you why I think it's so important, as you might not think it is just from looking at it. Okay? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the carving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young. Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They, do, they go out and do not return to them. Now, on the face of it, you might think, what's so great about that passage, Andy? Um, why is it so important? Um, why do you think you should talk to you, <laughs> to you this morning about this? Well, I actually think that wrapped up in this little paragraph is a question. And I think, or my, my personal opinion now, is that it's one of the most profound and inspiring and interesting questions in the whole of the Bible. And the question is, do you know when mountain goats give birth? Okay, I think this is an incredible question, a very profound question, an amazing question. But it doesn't look like it, does it? <laughs> it looks like, you know, and it's almost, the answer is actually very simple. The answer is not important. The answer is no. Do you know when the mountains give birth? No, you don't. The, the, the answer isn't actually as important as the question is. Or more accurately, who's asking who? Because this is actually God asking Job a question. So it's God asking Job, do you know when mountain goats give birth? Now, why is this all important? Um, well, bear with me. We will get there, okay? Um, but to tell you, to give you the kind of context of why this is such an important question, um, I'm just going to very briefly kind of give you, tell you what Job, give an overview of the book of Job and where this kind of fits in. Fascinating book. I love the book of Job. Um, I don't think people read it enough. I can understand why people don't read it. It's depressing. And it's essentially four old men arguing each at each other in poetry. <laughs> chapter after chapter after chapter. So I can, it's quite an intimidating book. Um, but I think that it's one of the bravest books in Scripture, one of the most challenging books in Scripture that ask questions that a lot of us are quite afraid to think about and ask. Like, do you know when mountain goats give birth? Um, Job has a... Being basically poetry, apart from the beginning and the end, it's a very kind of structured, organized book. Everything kind of fits in its certain place. And it has this kind of wonderful pattern to it that you see in a lot of books in Scripture. has many different names, chiasms, chiasm, chiastic structure, all sorts of fancy names. It basically means texts which kind of mirror each other. Like, this is the middle. And it's like you're putting a big mirror along there, and the top looks like the bottom. You see what I mean? 
It's kind of a text that the beginning and the end are basically about the same thing. So it's a text that kind of mirrors each other. And often in these cases, it's the middle part which is the most standout and important thing. Um, in Job's case, the middle part is kind of like taking you out of the story for a moment, sorting your head out, and then putting you back in. So it's important for that. But this is kind of how it breaks down. You have the beginning where Job is introduced and what's happening, and you have the end where Job is restored. You have Job's complaint in chapter 3 about what's happening to him, and then Job's confession in chapter 42 when he's had this revelation of God. Then you get these three dialogues between Job and his friends um, who are trying to comfort him and not doing a very good job of, in his misery. And then you have three monologues, three speeches, one from, one from Job, one from Elihu, and one from God about the situation. And in the middle, you have this kind of interlude, which isn't connected to the rest and kind of takes you out and kind of cleans you up from the chaos and then puts you back in again. That's kind of its function. Um, the prologue is actually incredibly important to the book. Um, it's one of the strangest parts because it's, it's kind of basically Yahweh and Satan having a confrontation and argument about the life of Job and then what happens to him. It's a very strange story, but it's important to kind of setting up the whole book because it tells us some very important things. The first thing it tells us is that Job is righteous. Um, Job is innocent, and anything that happens to him, he doesn't deserve it. This is not like a punishment for sin. Um, he doesn't deserve all of this. Um, and he's also got this incredible life. Then you have Yahweh and the Satan having this confrontation about the life of Job, and you have a series of trials that happens to Job because of that, where he loses his family, his wealth, his prestige, his social standing, lots of things. What this prologue also tells you that even though Job is going through trials, what's actually happening is, is God is going through a trial. This is like God's character is on trial through Job, and Job is kind of being his champion. So if basically Satan is trying to get Job to curse God, because if Job can curse God, this proves a number of things. One, it proves that the only reason Job worships God in the first place is because God gives him things. It's like, he's righteous because you bless him. He loves you and worships you because you bless him. If you take away the blessing, he won't be righteous and he'll curse you. That's the first thing. And if that's true, that means that God actually isn't worthy of worship just for being God. God can only be worshipped if he bribes you or he pays for it. The second, God has said that he's righteous. But if Job then curses God, then God is wrong. <laughs> Job wasn't righteous. So God's judgment is wrong. And if all of these things are true, then God's sovereignty over good and evil in the lives of humanity is in question. You know, so it's actually God who is on trial rather than Job in this book. So Job is his champion. You know, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, John Walton, says, Job is not about Job. Job is about God. This is a book entirely about God, but Job is just like in whose life Job, God is being discussed or happening in. Then, a bit quicker for the rest because it's less complicated, Job complains, I'm innocent, all this suffering, I don't deserve it. Your God is doing this to me, but I don't deserve it. And also, God, you're not telling me why. 
you're not explaining to me why this is happening. I don't deserve this. I'm innocent. Then Job's friends debate this with him. So, no, you must have done something wrong. Otherwise, God wouldn't do this to you. You can't be innocent. You're suffering, therefore you're guilty. You cannot question God like you're doing. And they go on and on and on, chapter after chapter. Job saying, I'm innocent. Them saying, no, you're not. I'm innocent. You're not. I'm innocent. You're not. And on and on and on and on. Then you get chapter 28, this interlude, this psalm of wisdom, where the author kind of interrupts this debate and says, you won't find any wisdom here. (laughs) You won't find the wisdom of what's happening in Job and his friend's argument. You cannot find wisdom. You can't go and mine it in a, you can't, not like gold or jewels, that's not how you find wisdom. You get wisdom can only be found by God. And the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. That, if you want to find wisdom in this situation, start with God, not Job and his friends arguing. Then you get the three speeches, which basically act as a summary of everything else. So Job summarizes his innocence. He gives this kind of oath of innocence. I'm not guilty. I haven't done anything wrong. Yet God is causing me suffering, and he's not telling me why, and I deserve to know why. Elihu comes along, who's this young lad who comes along and then spends one chapter telling you how what he's about to tell you is the most amazing thing you've ever heard, and then just actually repeats everything else (laughs) that the other friend said. So he's like a summary of Job's friends. And then Yahweh, God, turns up and reveals, well, reveals what I'm about to tell you in a minute. Um, I don't want to give too much away at the moment. Then Job confesses. He doesn't curse God, rather he confesses. He confesses his ignorance of God. He didn't know um, as much as he thought he did. God is greater than he ever imagined, and he's comforted in his suffering. And then finally, in the epilogue, Job is declared righteous again. God says, everything he said about me was right. Job's friends are rebuked. And then his, champ, his life is restored to what it once was. And the book ends. So that's kind of what the book is like in a nutshell. Now, this question is when God turns up and gives his summary of his situation. But because this is a confrontation in heaven, essentially, where Job's life is championing God's character, God can't actually tell Job what's going on. Because that would be cheating, in a way. If, if it's like, if I do these things to Job, and he still blesses you in the end, then you're right. But if he curses you, I'm right. That's what's happening. But if you tell Job why this is happening then Job can make an easy decision. It's not based on his own decision. It's based on what God is telling him again. So God can't say, sorry, Job, Satan turned up, and this is what happened. He can't do that. So from Job's perspective, he has no idea what's happened between God and Satan. So from him, this is God doing it to him. And it's evil, and he doesn't deserve it. He has a right to know why, but God's not telling him. So what Yahweh says to Job is an answer to his complaint, but without answering it, if that makes sense. God speaks to Job, 
but doesn't answer his question because he can't in this story. So how does he answer it? And of course, his answer, because this is all down to the issue of is Yahweh, sorry, is Yahweh worthy of worship? Is Yahweh's judgment sound? Is he truly sovereign over good and evil? That's the issue at hand. So his answer has got to answer that in some way without directly answering that in Job's life. So it's a little bit complicated. Incredible book. So how does God answer? Well, oh, it's not working now. This is how he answers. Essentially, you have an ancient episode of planet Earth. Um, God gets all David Attenborough on Job. And you have a few chapters where God just describes creation. He doesn't talk about Satan. He doesn't talk about Job and the suffering. He doesn't talk about his relationship between good and evil. He doesn't talk about worship. He doesn't talk about all of these things. Instead, he starts describing the world he's made. He starts talking about the heavens, the sea, and so on. And he starts talking about horses and goats. Okay? So he starts describing the world. He reveals himself as creator. And he reveals that he has a purpose. He has a plan in creation. He, and also he has providence in creation. He's involved in creation. He's, a part, he's not a part of it, but he gets involved in it. He's not just create, create, he maintains. He's not a distant God who starts and walks away. He starts and then carries on in there. He's involved. The world he made exists for a reason, and he's fully involved in it. That's the point of his revelation. And he talks about two worlds in this. He talks about the physical world, the earth, the heavens, the animals, but also the spiritual kind of almost mythological world. When he talks about these chaos monsters and dragons like Behemoth and Leviathan, how he's, he is control of the spiritual world as well, because that's essentially the ancient form of what we talk about, demons and devil and that type of thing. In the ancient world, they talked about dragons and beasts and things. So it's just different language for about the same thing. So God is sovereign over the physical world and the spiritual world. And in that context, we have our question. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Mountain goats give birth in the mountains. The clue is in the name, <laughs> okay? So God is asking Job, has he been there when a mountain goats give birth? Has he seen it? Does it know when he's happened? And the answer is obviously no. We're talking about those mountain goats, if you've seen them, who can basically walk up cliff edges. You know, now, nowadays, of course, we have super zoom cameras, and we can see them. <laughs> but imagine thousands of years ago, people would have no idea where they were going. Like the places where mountain goats give birth are completely inaccessible to humans. No human could witness that event. So no human could know when it happened. Okay? So God is asking Job something that he can never know. That he's never knowing. He can never know when it happens or where it happens. He's completely ignorant of it. He, know it does, he knows it happens but he's not involved. 
but Yahweh knows. He can see <laughs> the mountain goats give birth. Therefore, he knows when they give birth. And he's actually there when it happens. He witnesses the birth of every single mountain goat. And this is why I think this question is so important. God, who made the earth, the sea, heavens, who maintains creation, who created all life, who is transcendent, sovereign, glorious beyond all thought, also witnesses the birth of mountain goats. That's why I love this question. Because it's saying this glorious, wonderful God that we worship also thinks that cosmologically, universally speaking, it's important for him to watch a mountain goat give birth. Yet he's still this. Does that make sense? He is this, yet he's also this. This sim- that's why I think this simple question is so profound. It tells us so much about who God is. He is a God who is so much beyond us, yet at the same time, he sees this event to be important. He is transcendent, yes, but he's also intimate. He holds the cosmos in his hands, but he also watches mountain goats give birth. For Job, this answer that wasn't an actual answer brought him comfort. He still had no idea why this was happening to him. He'd spent chapter after chapter asking God, why has this happened to him? And God never tells him. Never tells him what's going on. But now he knows something that he did not realize before. He now realizes this God that he worships, who is so great. You know, who he famously says things at the beginning like Yahweh gives, Yahweh takes away, blessed be the name of Yahweh. You know, if God gives us good, should not we also accept evil from him? You know, he's talking about this glorious sovereign God. Yet he now knows this glorious sovereign God is actually sitting in the ash heap with him. Because if Watching a mountain goat give birth is vitally important for God to attend. Then Job's suffering also is. If that's a monumental occasion, then so is this. That he's there with him. God actually feels his pain. God is aware of his pain. God is aware of his suffering. And in this big revelation, if God has purpose and providence... When it comes to Job's suffering, God knows what he's doing. He has purpose, and he's there to provide in the midst of suffering. He knows what he's doing. And when you get Job's confession, it's not, sometimes it's translated repentance, but it's not confession or repentance in the sense that I've done something wrong. Or in a sense, I have sinned, please forgive me. It's more of a, I had no idea kind of confession. 
It's more like, God, I thought I knew you, but now I realize I didn't. I had no idea. He says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then a couple of verses later, I, have heard, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job has this incredible revelation of who God is, that transcendent creator of all things who also is there watching mountain goats give birth. <laughs> this revelation brings comfort to Job in the midst of his suffering. Now, it doesn't take his suffering away. It doesn't explain his suffering, but it brings comfort in the midst of suffering. And this is one of the reasons why I think Job is such an incredible book. It asks, it, it, to, to be honest, it asks more important questions than when do mountain goats give birth. I just think it's a prime example that sums everything up. Yeah. It, it asks difficult, challenging questions about why do righteous people suffer? It does ask questions like, why do we worship? Who is God? What is God's relationship to good and evil in our lives? If God is sovereign, what does that actually mean when we look at the world around us? It does ask these really challenging, brave questions. And it does something even braver than that. It doesn't answer any of them. It doesn't tell you, and this is why. <laughs> this is the role of God in good and evil. This is what it means that God is sovereign. You know, this is why righteous people suffer. It doesn't say any of that. It just says, this is God. And reveals God to you in a bigger and greater way. And doesn't give you any answers. So what can these mountain goats teach us? Well, if he knows where mountain goats give birth, then he certainly knows us. <laughs> if he was there when they were born, he was there when we were born. If he's aware of their life, he's aware of our life. He sees us day by day. Yes, he is transcendent. He is beyond us. He is glorious beyond measure. You know, It's not surprising that every time that someone has an encounter with God, in the Bible, there is a common factor, terror. <laughs> if, you ha if you meet God, you are scared witless <laughs> because God is God. You know? God is terrifying. He is, yes, but he's also intimate. That terrifying God was there when you were born and will be there when you die <laughs> and everything in between. If he is so concerned about goats that he talks to Job at length about them and horses <laughs> and other things, if he's so concerned, then he's also so concerned about us and all the aspects of our life. If he created all things, yes, he created all things, but he's also fully involved in all things. He is there in the good and the evil. In the best moment of your life, God 
is next year. <laughs> in the worst moment of your life, God is next to you. He's always there. He's always involved. He always knows. He has purpose in all things. He has providence in all things. God knows what he's doing. He doesn't always tell us. Sometimes I suspect it's because our brains can't take it. Um, <laughs> he doesn't tell us what he's doing in the big scale or sometimes in the little scale. He doesn't tell us all the time. And so like Job, we have to have faith. I think for me, when I think of what faith is, part of it is actually faith is having faith that God is faithful. <laughs> that God is actually knows what he's doing and is true to his word and is good. Because you know, we don't always know. Because he doesn't always tell us what's going on. We have to have faith that he does know what he's doing. That he is fully involved. And like Job, we can draw comfort knowing that he sits in our ash pile too. That I don't know about you, but I've experienced terrible, terrible days. And yet somehow I've known that God was there as well. In the midst of that horror. And I remember, I still, I, say, I tell this story a lot. The worst day of my life, I could not get a hymn out of my head. No matter how hard I tried, and it was how great thou art. My world was literally falling about around me, and yet my brain was singing how great thou art. And I think that was God making me do that, reminding me, I'm there with you, I'm there with you. I'm, I'm still the same. Your life has now changed 100%, but I am still the same. And I'm still with you. I'm in the ash pile with you. He's always with us. You know, later in the Bible, Jesus will be described as Emmanuel. And that's such a perfect title. God with us. Not just in the sense that he came down as a human, but also in the sense he is always with us. And as you read out, his spirit is within us constantly, interceding. You know, it, it fits. <laughs> interceding in Job moments when we can't even say to God, express our feelings. When we can't even say what's wrong, it's so bad. The Spirit is there whispering in the ears of God, interceding for us because he's always with us.